episode 395 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views expressed here today do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, and certainly not of Spotify. Joining me on the News Roundup, we just have two people, but they are lively contributors. Michael Ellis, who held senior legal and policy positions in Congress, on the White House, and the intelligence community, and Nick Weaver, who teaches computer science at UC Berkeley. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We cannot record this episode without acknowledging what is happening in Ukraine, which is being, at a minimum, having a formal Russian intervention on its territory, at least in the areas that had been the subject of trumped-up separatist attacks uh, and efforts. And now those efforts will be rewarded with Russian boots on the ground. And, you know, more to come. The U.S. is at work, as is EU, on a package of sanctions. They've done one set that's just aimed at people who are doing business in those separatist areas. But it sounds to me as though the intervention of troops means that we're going to see a much bigger sanctions package, maybe by the end of today when we finally release this. And that raises the question, how much cyber activity we will see either on the part of the West or on the part of the Russians and how prepared we are for it. So, Michael, you were at NSC in the last administration. You have some idea of what kind of a crisis this would create inside the White House. Uh, what do you think is happening on the NSC today? Well, I suspect there's an awful lot of meetings going on. That's what the NSC is good at, convening meetings and, yep. and making people come to the table with, with different options. And and I imagine, you know, the Biden administration is considering a, a, a full range of options. They've ruled out, you know, sort of direct military intervention, said the U.S. troops will not go into Ukraine. But, you know, it's actually surprised me that they, uh, they've spelled out in great detail potential sanctions that the U.S. and European allies may levy upon Russia. And there's some hand-wringing going on today, I understand, as to whether or not the, the movement of Russian troops into the Donbass region you know, constitutes an invasion that will trigger these sanctions. But they haven't been talking about cyber. I yeah. think you know, if, you, if you're looking for options that are short of war with Russia, no one wants a confrontation you know, between the world's largest nuclear powers. No one wants that armed, armed conflict. You think if you're looking for options that are short of armed conflict, cyber would be on the table. And I hope it's on the table in these discussions at NSC. But whereas you know, they, uh, the Biden administration has spent a lot of time detailing the sanctions that they plan to impose uh, upon Russia if it takes aggressive action towards Ukraine, they haven't made any mention of cyber operations that they may conduct, which doesn't mean that cyber operations aren't part of what they're contemplating, simply that they haven't talked about it. And I think that's actually... Um, a real missed opportunity to build deterrence of Russia by spelling out in a little more detail, you know, if you are to go into Ukraine, these are the kinds of cyber operations that we will contemplate. And maybe even taking a couple of those actions in advance of the Russian aggression to show what our capabilities are and say, and there'll be a lot more coming if you persist in your course of action. I think that would be a very valuable thing to build deterrence of Russia right now. So I, I, my suspicion, and I've never sat at the table when these things came up, but I cannot help believing that the third 
person to speak at the table after the sanctions uh, or the tax options have been laid out says, how successful would the Russians be if they did that to us instead uh, of us doing it to them or in retaliation for it? And my guess is that the answer is going to be they'd be very successful. And that is really deterring the idea that this kind of action short of war should be a, a, a big option because it will drag us into a tit for tat in which we'll lose. Yeah, so so U.S. critical infrastructure is always the the concern and the vulnerability, right? There are massive security vulnerabilities across our critical infrastructure. We, a lot of this we know already, right? But our infrastructure is dispersed across, you know, thousands of different power plants, the tens of thousands of water treatment facilities. You know, I, I think we'd want to keep any cyber operations out of the critical infrastructure realm and focus on military and intelligence targets. And at least the few cyber operations that the U.S. government has acknowledged against those kinds of targets, for instance, in 2018, when CyberCom in advance of the midterm elections took action against the Internet Research Agency, you know, Russian government sponsored election interference actors, you know, we didn't really see anything in response. There wasn't a, an escalatory spiral of the kind that, uh, that you know. So I, I think we'd want to obviously keep it away from taking down their power sector, taking down their water treatment plants to avoid the possibility that the Russians return the favor to us. But, you know, if we were to make life a little harder for the GRU or the SDR or some of these Russian units moving into Ukraine, I think that would be the kind of gray zone operation that the U.S. should be considering right now. Yeah. And you would think that the cyber equivalent of covert action should be high on that list as well, to the extent that we actually can do something and make it look like or create great ambiguity about whether it was the Ukrainians who suddenly good at this and uh, managed to confuse the attackers or make them more vulnerable to attack. If we could pull that off, it would be great. But you would have thought there'd be some preparation of that battlefield by talking about how we are going to bolster Ukrainian capabilities, both defensive and offensive, in response to the threats. I haven't heard that, but maybe I missed it. We've spoken in the past about bolstering Ukrainian defensive capabilities. Right. You know, even a couple of years ago, we were talking about that. Cybercom had sent teams to Ukraine to to help them secure their networks. I mean, that's going to be a, a difficult task. You know, the Russians are obviously very sophisticated, skilled cyber actors, and there's been plenty of public reporting about how the Russians have have fairly well penetrated the Ukraine security services. If you remember back in 2014, like, like the head of the Ukrainian Navy just you know turned over the keys to yep. uh, of, of a, a part of their fleet to the Russians. I mean, you know, there there are a lot of challenges that the Ukrainians have of defending themselves, but. I, I think you're right that you know, we're missing out on the opportunity to make clear that there might be some offensive operations that would be if the Russians continue their aggression towards Ukraine and not just this sort of vanilla talk about helping the Ukrainians bolster their defenses. All right. Well, that's our pass in the direction of rapidly unfolding military events. Let's see if we can talk a little bit about some of the other news. Nick, the Justice Department announced that they've put Un Choi in charge of an office that will do cryptocurrency-related investigations. And as the China initiative dies, the crypto initiative is being elevated into something that the Justice Department wants to see a lot of U.S. attorneys' offices get in, involved in. Is there significance to this beyond the press release? Yes. 
apart from the folks at home can't see me doing a happy dance. The criminality in that space is off the hook. It is basically a target-rich environment. And it's starting to infest the normal financial systems and cause a lot of collateral damage with ransomware. And we've really seen this over the past few months that like, there have been multiple Bitcoin Tumblr cases brought in the past year headquartered out of D.C. And this is clearly a very strong priority for enforcement. And seeing both the DOJ at headquarters level and the FBI both spinning up uh, dedicated teams to tackle a lot of the problems in this space is really reassuring because there's a lot of targets that really need to be taken out before they do damage. Yeah, Michael, your thoughts? Well, the folks at home really did miss out on Nick's happy dance, and I I think it's well justified. You know, there's a a lot of good that blockchain technology can do, but as I think, you know, others have discussed before on this podcast, it's also uniquely right for criminals to take advantage of. And, you know, it's really been impressive what DOJ and the FBI have done with tracing back uh, some of uh, these crimes using blockchain technology. So it's good to see that there is now a single official who will be coordinating these efforts and hopefully, you know, reinforce that while cryptocurrencies are pseudonymous, they, they are not anonymous. And there is, in fact, a trail that law enforcement can follow to find you if you use them for criminal purposes. And one of the interesting things is even for private purposes, the criminals are starting to get outed. There was just reporting in Forbes today that the original Ethereum DAO hacker is probably identified by the journalist Laura Shin. And that is something that is significantly new and represents, among other things, Chainalysis able to get through a lot of the mixers better than they used to. So there's a lot of criminals who shouldn't be sleeping easy with this DOJ initiative. Yeah, what, what I think, you know, this was also true of the people who were breaking into accounts, not cryptocurrency accounts, just breaking the security of various institutions, cyber infrastructure. It always turns out that the crooks have security that is no better and often worse than the police. Uh, And that's starting to show up here, that it's going to be very expensive if you're in the business of exploiting a, a cryptocurrency crime to protect your OPSEC and cash out effectively, as I think that was the lesson of the Bitfinex bandits, the cringe wrappers. Uh, they worked pretty hard to maintain their security and failed. And I suspect those failures are be- going to become more common. So that's all good news, I guess. Yeah. And, and gov- government is slow to catch up to this, right? Like yes. it's taken a couple years to, to get to this point, but government does catch up, even if the, the ship is slow to turn. All right. Uh, We've got a lot of face recognition news. I wrote another op-ed about uh, this story. The IRS has kind of, sort of, backed off of its ID.me face recognition verification for taxpayers. Although 
Uh, it sounds as though they're going to be backing away from it slowly, and it will still be an option for people who want to use it uh, to verify their account. And frankly, I would tell you if you have that option, you should take it. It's likely to be more convenient and more secure. My takeaway, notwithstanding the fact that nobody in the media will tell you that because they just they've decided they hate face recognition for reasons that aren't clear. It's like hating Canadian truckers. It's just something that your tribe requires you to do. And there's a fight in Congress about what to do about face recognition generally and what to do about IRS face recognition. My guess is you can unite practically the entire Republican Party by saying maybe we should make life harder for the IRS. So maybe we will see legislation perhaps in an omnibus uh, appropriations bill that restricts what the IRS can do in this area. Personally, I think it's nuts. Uh, security and the accuracy of face recognition these days is way beyond what it used to be and uh, way beyond what the interviewers, the Zoom interviewers who will talk to you if you don't use that can do. So my, my sense is that Congress probably should just leave this alone and uh, let the IRS figure out in, ter in part by asking people what they want, because I think people will vote for their f with their feet for the much faster recognition they'll get with technology than trying to talk to individuals and uh, lift their head up in six months and figure out where they are. But Michael, uh, you followed this stuff as well. There's a whole bunch of other things going on, but your views on the IRS side, where I should say the, practically my entire tribe of uh, Republicans has decided uh, they should trash face, face recognition, at least in the hands of the IRS. Yeah, well, the, the IRS has squandered a lot of credibility about how, you know, it might might safeguard people's information and, and not abuse information. You know, it's actually a, a, a little bit of a tangent, but it is remarkable that what dozens of, of high net worth individuals tax returns, you know, ended up in the papers a couple months ago, you know, information that seemingly only could have come from the IRS. And we've heard nothing about the... violation of their privacy. And we have nothing about it since then, right? Yeah, that's, just, you, you're, you're no, absolutely no right. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. it was almost as though the administration said, well, it served you right for making all that money. I, it was weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the IR, Republicans' distrust of the IRS will, you know, may, may be unique to the IRS and and may not extend to to other government uses of facial recognition technology. For instance, if you look at this company Clearview AI, which has been the subject of a lot of litigation, and I think a, a lot of very interesting issues are coming to head in that litigation. When you're talking about law enforcement use of facial recognition technology to help, you know, find murderers or, or child sex traffickers, you know, I, I think you might get a, a slightly different reaction from a lot of Republicans compared to to IRS use of facial recognition technology. And on the Clearview front, there was actually a recent ruling in Illinois. You know, Clearview, for those who aren't familiar with the product, you know, has scraped, I think, about 100 billion images, all publicly accessible images off of the internet. It took them off of Facebook, off of Instagram, off of LinkedIn, any page that had a lot of publicly available photographs. This company collected those images and then applies its own analytic techniques to to create what they call a, a facial map or a face print, and then um, you know match it to a, a particular person. And law enforcement, you can imagine, finds this tool incredibly useful to help them to help them solve crimes. And I think a lot of law and order Republicans will be enthusiastic about about that use of facial recognition technology. You know, they've been hit with lawsuits from. You know, a number of civil liberties groups. One in Illinois turns on 
you know, the state of Illinois has a unique biometric identity protection act that prohibits exactly the kind of technology that, that, that Clearview relies on. And I think we're, what we're seeing is a really interesting interplay between First Amendment rights. Clearview has hired Floyd Abrams, the renowned First Amendment scholar, to you know, argue that, that it has a, a First Amendment right to use publicly available information, to analyze that information, and, and then sell to the law enforcement. But others, I think there will be commercial applications of this going forward as well. And, and that Illinois' law uh, is unconstitutional as a, a violation of the First Amendment. In district court in Illinois, Clearview's arguments fell flat. I thought the judge kind of gave it the, the judge, the judge seems to give it the back of her hand a little bit. Oh yeah, it's, a, it's like it, I, her, her entire yeah. First Amendment analysis, it might fill a page. It basically says, yeah, it, uh, it, 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 it kind of doesn't really even engage on the idea that this is all public data and instead says, well, it's not just your face, it's your face measurements and and the fact that they've got a face print which is just you know the actual measurements of all of the aspects of your face that uh, applying their uh, face print measurement technology to a face is not the same as looking at a face and recognizing somebody which i think is a little hard to swallow but allows the judge to say this is about an activity, conduct, rather than speech. A, and therefore, since there is no viewpoint discrimination, I, a, I can find no First Amendment problem here. That's how I read the, the thing. It seemed to me remarkably casual and sort of motivated in its reasoning. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that she said that you know the, the the face print, just the analysis of the publicly available information, somehow then become private information that it's not publicly available anymore. And this is odd reasoning, given that as you noted in the IRS example, if you were to hire a person to do the exact same work, right, the act of looking at a photograph and comparing it to someone in front that you know a human brain does without the use of any software. No one would contend that you know that you violated someone's privacy right by looking at a picture of them and and verifying that it's the same person who's in front of you when a human brain does it. So somehow it becomes in in this judge's eyes not publicly available information when the software does it. I wasn't impressed with that analysis, and I, I don't think it's the last of the this this First Amendment argument. I think you know Clearview is facing similar lawsuits in other jurisdictions. I I, I suspect that there are going to be. Uh, better reasoned court opinions that I'll have to sort through this question. Well, Facebook is facing a a, a very similar lawsuit under a statute that actually does say uh, face print is biometric information. And the reason these these cases get litigated so aggressively and then settled so precipitously is that they authorize a flat sum in damages. I think it's like $1,000 per violation under BIPA, under the Illinois law. Texas has a similar statute uh, that authorizes $25,000 per violation. So every single face you scrape, every face you scrape, there's a, there's a song in there somewhere, is $25,000 in damages. And the attorney general of Texas is suing for some hundreds of billions of dollars on the theory that a whole lot of Texans had their face data collected. 
Yeah, and I think Facebook has discontinued its facial recognition efforts in the face of this litigation and other state regulatory efforts. You know, the Texas statute, if I recall correctly, is also unique. Only the state AG can enforce it. So you don't have the same you know, possibility of a trial lawyer bonanza that you would in mm -hmm. other contexts. But you know, the Texas AG is also you know, suing Google for antitrust violations, you know, all related to Google's domination of the, the online advertising marketplace. So, you know, clearly there's a, an enthusiastic litigator in the Texas AG's office that are taking on big tech companies. And I, I think we, we will, this is not the last we have heard of the First Amendment versus privacy uh, uh, argument. I think it will, we'll see it in Texas as well. Absolutely. And Facebook can afford to hire Floyd Abrams and every other First Amendment lawyer on the planet to, to make that argument. So Clearview AI help is on the way, although, you know, whether it'll arrive in time is a different question. I, I think the last uh, story that relates to all this was that there was a report issued uh, by Amnesty International saying, look at this New Yorker's who are in high stop and frisk areas are also subjected to more face recognition cameras. And, and, and that's shocking because poor people and people in high crime areas shouldn't be burdened with law enforcement technology. I, I have to say, this just shows how out of touch Amnesty International is if it thinks that people are going to say, yeah, I'm here in a high crime area and what I want is less ability to catch the criminals. It's nuts. And I, I was quite surprised to see, well, I guess I wasn't surprised to see The Guardian give it uh, an enthusiastic welcome. But I noticed that the, the new mayor of New York is saying, Face recognition is exactly what we want in order to catch criminals because things are getting bad here again. Yeah, and look, I, I understand the the concern from privacy advocates that facial recognition is perhaps sort of one step down the road towards a social capital system and a mass surveillance. I, I, you know, you hear these arguments that, that this puts us on a track toward the Chinese system where you know every action you take in public is being analyzed by cameras and facial recognition software. And you know it just makes it easier to set up to that kind of social capital system that is obviously no, no benefit for civil liberties and you know, can enable totalitarianism. But you know, there's a long way to go between helping law enforcement identify the perpetrator of a crime and Xinjiang. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, and and the idea that we should stop Xinjiang by ensuring that the cops can't catch muggers probably guarantees that we'll get something worse than Xinjiang. All right. Uh, so speaking of Xinjiang, uh, the Justice Department is clearly now signaling to the press that it wants out of the China initiative. And, the, you know, this is how programs that have become a, an embarrassment politically die immediately, but with modifications and changes of emphasis and announcements that the goals of the initiative have already been met. And we've seen all of that, Michael, in, the, in what the Justice Department is leaking about its plans for the China initiative, uh, along with promises that, of course, they will continue to pursue uh, intellectual property theft and corporate espionage by the Chinese government or any other government with the same enthusiasm as before. I, I kind of feel like this was 
almost inevitable from the time the Biden administration took office. Um, but maybe it it isn't the end of the world because they're right that they've probably changed the atmosphere in uh, act. Yeah, you'd like to think that it wouldn't be inevitable to to wind down an initiative designed to target what the FBI, at least until recently, was calling our greatest domestic national security threat. That's to say, you know, undisclosed Chinese influence, Chinese economic espionage inside the United States. You know, you you wouldn't think there would be a hard sell to continue that initiative in the Biden administration. But at least if the reporting of the New York Times from over the weekend is correct, and it certainly does look like DOJ is is responsible for that reporting and that they're signaling that they're going to end the China initiative. It, it just it sends a, a very bad signal, both internally within DOJ. It signals to to line prosecutors that and to FBI agents. You have to remember that DOJ is a an organization where there's a lot of autonomy distributed down to the the field. You know, ninety some U.S. Attorney's Office, fifty some different FBI field offices. Every everyone out in the field level is going to hear the message from the top that that China cases are no longer the priority. And you know. Look, there will still be some, I'm sure. It doesn't mean a stop to efforts to, to prosecute you know, Chinese espionage. But the if, if you're an ambitious prosecutor, if you're an ambitious AUSA out at a U.S. attorney's office, you know, you'll have gotten the signal that this is not the way to enhance your career by looking to investigate and bring a, a China-related case. And so it's a, it's a bad message inside of DOJ. It's also a bad to China right now. You know, Here we are on the heels of the withdrawal in Afghanistan. Russian aggression in Ukraine, and what are what are we signaling with the end of the DOJ China initiative that we don't regard China as a threat, we don't regard it as a priority in the same way? I think it's it's dangerous. Yeah, I th- well, actually, I think the the other thing that bothers me here is a, it is a triumph of the enthusiasm for assuming that anything the U.S. government does is presumptively racist and allowing China of all countries to play the race card in these investigations. And I'm quite confident China is playing the race card, but unfortunately, so are all of the Asian American groups that support the Biden administration. That that was never, that accusation was never far from people's lips when these cases were brought up. I And it has an impact on, a, as you say, an AUSA to think I might win this case, a hard case, and end up tarred as that racist in the Justice Department. And nobody, certainly nobody who hopes to succeed in a Democratic administration wants that attached to their name. And I think the Chinese government wouldn't have been hard for them to figure it out, but they've clearly figured out that that's the way to handle their disputes with this administration over things like espionage is just play the race card. All right, Nick. Yeah, and it, it, it's just, it, I would say it's just disappointing to see that it worked. Yes, um, exactly. That's yeah. that. And when, when 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 the when the folks in charge, you know, are clear-eyed about the threat in other in other respects, right? They you, you get the sense that they know that uh, this threat is real and that these cases need to be prosecuted and they just can't get past the, the Part criticism of, uh, they're, that they're is secret racism. They're taking flack from their base as they see it. Uh, and and so they are telling the Justice Department, well, okay, pursue the stuff you have to pursue. We understand, but don't brag about it. Don't make noise about it. And if somebody is acquitted, well, that's going to be a problem for the AUSA that prosecuted the case. 
All right. The other continuing contributor to the the podcast <laughs> is uh, uh, the fight over Pegasus spyware. Lots of stories. I I, I I've sort of gotten tired of the story of the Saudi woman who was a women's driver enthusiast and campaigner who was the victim of apparently at least two high-profile intrusion efforts, first by the UAE Project Raven guys, and now with a Pegasus exploit, uh, and she's likely to sue everybody involved. That has produced a fight inside Europe over um, whether Pegasus software should ever be used. Uh, the European Data Protection Supervisor, who's kind of a, you know, better understood, not as a government uh, entity, but as a funded private civil liberties advocate, uh, has said, essentially, I don't think anybody in the EU, any government in the EU should be using this. And uh, there's kind of a debate now inside Europe about whether and how to restrict spyware uses by governments. Nick, uh, I don't see how the government can stop using this maybe their only way inside the uh, the phones of people who are committing crimes but they're clearly going to suffer a reputational hit if they use it well i think it's more subtle that there are multiple vendors in the space the problem is that the nso group went down the hacking team death spiral where what you do is you don't execute good customer control you hack activists. The activists go to Bill. We trap Bill Marzak, my former office mate. We actually trapped one of NSO's previous attacks on a iPhone that I provided. And then what happens is you fate share. So what ended up happening is the analysis was done. It revealed a vulnerability that not only NSO was using, but a different Israeli group. And it resulted in Apple notifying the victims. And this notify the victims really changes the fate sharing. So it and, means and, and the victims, that, the victims could be sex traffickers from Bulgaria, as well as a, a women's driving campaigners from Saudi Arabia. Right, which means now if you're serious about using this for law enforcement, you're not going to use the mm-hmm. vendors that sell to the repressive a-holes. The vendors, however, want to sell to the repressive a-holes because they pay more. It just creates this negative feedback loop that that causes your programs to get busted. So I wonder um, if... Uh, I, I don't know if Apple did what Facebook did. Because when Facebook did notification to NSO victims, they did not notify anybody who had a pen register order with Facebook out. And if Apple did the same, that reduces the collateral damage. But but I'm this not is sure the that face, problem that, you face. I'm not sure that Apple has as many of those orders because, of course, it's a phone and, and you get your order from the phone company rather than you deliver your order to the phone company. No, they are also a messenger service. That's true. And that for so those, they would have gotten support. them. Yes, they would have gotten yes. them for those guys. And yeah. so they, we don't know whether Apple tried to avoid the collateral damage, but that is something that companies 
or that uh, governments always need to be aware of when dealing with the uh, commercial spyware vendors. Isn't that interesting? And you would have expected, wouldn't you have expected Apple to announce that it had done that uh, in order to head off uh, complaints from law enforcement? And if they didn't uh, do that, you would have expected complaints from law enforcement. We haven't seen anything on either topic. Well, I think it's partially because the market had already deflected or bisected that the NSO group already got a really bad reputation a few years back with like the hack of. And so we had already seen the bisecting and the only real law enforcement users that we know of were Mexico and Mexico. It's really questionable how much of that's law enforcement or just the biggest drug gang in the uh, country. Well, so the Israelis use it. Uh, and there was a scandal suggesting, I think, a, an Israeli publication, business publication said, we have evidence that Pegasus has been used against a whole bunch of Israeli NGO types and government officials without a proper authorization. And now there's an Israeli investigator who says, well, we looked at that and actually we did have, there were orders on uh, several of those people. So it may be that it, it's, it's at the point where NSO is getting blamed for stuff that it shouldn't be blamed for because that is the logical outcome of, of this spiral. Also, the Israelis are mostly, Israeli government is mostly denying the story altogether that saying that most weren't actually targeted at all. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so this was catalyst, I think. they've got to watch out. Yeah. yeah. It, they're standing but, by their story, uh, the, so it will be interesting to hear how this finally turns out. Not only are they standing by their story, but remember that the NSO group software, although good, although really good, Bill is better. And so there are forensics footprints that Bill and the folks at Amnesty International and the like have identified. And so if the um, Israeli authorities are lying, they run a significant risk of having their lie be called out. Yep. Okay, so uh, speaking of forensic uh, examination of espionage on our phone, Michael, I, there was a report about just how hard it is to know what TikTok is doing with your data that just was published, even though it looks as though it's drawing on forensic reports whose provenance was a little uncertain that are a year or two old. I was puzzled by this story. It, it did sound like TikTok was doing an awful lot that was a little suspicious, but there was there's something a little funny about this story too. Yeah, the story is about two recent studies by white hat cybersecurity researchers. And as you note, Stuart, the, the studies are a little old. They're from late 2020 and early 2021. And it's not, uh, you know, Yahoo News had the story as an exclusive and they didn't publish the underlying studies by the cybersecurity researchers. They merely described them. So it is a little difficult to know what's, what's going on. But the allegation is that TikTok monitors a lot of user data in ways that are more opaque than comparable social media apps, that normally it's possible to understand what exactly the app is tracking and not tracking. And TikTok makes that difficult in part by 
pulling the app directly from the company's servers. So there's an allegation that they can you know, change what the app is doing on the fly without giving any notifications to the users or without opening up any source code for developers to be able to look at and understand what exactly the app is doing. So you know, a little hard to say what is going on, but reinforcing that there, there may be, as others have noted, suspicious activity with TikTok with how it harvests user data and, and what uh, that data is ultimately used for. Yeah, that's how I, I come in. If you were already a little suspicious of TikTok, this would certainly make you significantly more suspicious because Bill Marzak would have trouble verifying exactly what the phone was doing, certainly by looking at the code on the phone. A, and there's a lot of obfuscation of both the code's operation and how it identifies people, a, a strong indication that the identifiers are quite enduring and that, you know, once they've got your number, you're going to be tracked highly effectively and maybe more effectively than by even Facebook or Google. Kind of troubling, but the failure to disclose the details makes it a little hard to uh, evaluate how worried we should be. Yeah, and TikTok says what we're doing is no different than what Facebook or Twitter or Google is doing. But again, it's a little hard to actually have anyone else verify that. Yeah, I, I and suspect. Also, yep, go ahead. And also, in the end, the problem with TikTok is not necessarily the app. It's how do you say Sephno 2 in Mandarin? Right. Right. It's all, all this data is going back to be analyzed and they, you know, they're, I, I, I don't, I'm not a big TikTok user, but apparently they know how to hook you and to draw a lot of inferences about your preferences and behaviors just from the clues that you give as you're watching those, those videos. So it is, it is a little scary. It's become that popular and kind of troubling Frankly, you know, Michael, I know you followed this when the Trump administration was talking about barring TikTok. The Biden administration pulled all of that and said, no, we're going to do it right, you know, because the Trump administration had, as usual in these things, sorry to say that, had done it in a kind of half-assed way that was going to result in a lot of legal challenges. But, you know, we're a year into the Biden administration and they really still are a long way from actually doing anything about TikTok. Yeah, which is really the quintessential Biden response to, to most issues. If you think Trump was doing things too quickly and perhaps incompletely, right, not following all the procedural wickets that should have been followed, a characterization that I would disagree with based on my own service, but I, I realize that it's a... Uh, you know, the conventional wisdom in, in, in some cases. If, if, if you think Trump erred too far in that direction, Biden errs too far the other way of, you know, analysis, debating the problem, not a lot of action. And it turns out that problems continue to fester when you don't act on them. And that amounts to a decision in and of itself. But a lot of really great NSC meetings, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks, Nick, uh, uh, for joining us. I want to invite our uh, listeners uh, to weigh in on a particular topic. I got a, a email last week from somebody who said, you should have episode 400 in person and let people come to celebrate the 400th anniversary. So here's my question. If we did that in Washington, write us and tell us if you would actually come. Because, you know, and if, if we think that we can get a, a good group of people, uh, we'll find a place to do it. Maybe we'll do it at Steptoe. Maybe we'll do it someplace else. Maybe we'll do it someplace that serves alcohol. Uh, and we're 
quite willing to to give that a shot. Uh, so let us know if you think that's worth doing and if you'd come to Washington to, to observe it, if you would prefer that we just do it in a way that would allow you to... Uh, watch it live to noon on Eastern on whatever day uh, number 400 comes up. Let us know that and we'll try to figure out a way to do that as well, even if we have to do it on Zoom instead of uh, our usual software. So that just send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Leave us ratings. That would be great. Um, I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 395 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. 